0: Good to be over here in the valley. You didn't mention I live in Greene County, just on the other side of the mountain, but uh, but I did buy my truck here, so I guess that. <laughs> so uh, when I talked to Milt about a subject I might lecture on, uh, I've been doing a lot of lecturing lately about music, uh, and uh, and I thought a, a particular angle on it might be to look at <clears throat> the problem in our culture of. Uh, Attentiveness and distraction. I, I did an interview a few years ago with a woman who wrote a wonderful book called Distracted: The Erosion of Attention and the Coming Dark Age. Her name is Maggie Jackson, and I'll talk a little bit more about her in a minute. About three minutes before I left the house to come over here, I looked at the news on the New York Times. Latest story on this tragic collision uh, of a train or derailing of a train. New, uh, Metro North investigation turns to engineers in attention. Uh, he, the engineer apparently did not appear to be drunk or on drugs, but he just was distracted. He was, quote, almost hypnotized or in a temporary trance, that place where you're not asleep and you're not 100% awake, he said. Uh, It it struck me, and I actually saw a couple of other pieces where where the idea of attentiveness and inattention. Uh, This is a a, a tragic, extreme case, but I think uh, many of us suffer from the problem of living in a a, a culture of distraction. Uh, Maggie Jackson says at the beginning of this book, the premise is simply the way we live is eroding our capacity for deep, sustained, perceptive attention the building block of intimacy, wisdom, and cultural progress. And in the book, she tries to demonstrate, as she says in the introduction, nothing is more central to creating a flourishing society built upon learning, contentment, caring, morality, reflection, and spirit than attention. She cites a psychiatrist in the book's introduction who says quite seriously, how do you know whether you have ADD or a severe case of modern life? (laughs) (laughs) To have a severe case of modern life is to suffer from attention deficit disorder. And she looks in the book at all the gadgets and habits that promote distraction uh, and at the necessity of attentiveness for civilized life. It's interesting, I looked today... uh, to see when the book was published. It was published uh, about six months after Apple introduced the first iPhone. And I was thinking about how how much smartphones have contributed to our sense of distractedness. Uh, in fact, the, the investigators in this accident were checking local cell tower traffic to find out if possibly, uh, as was the case in that uh, train collision in Spain, where the engineer was actually texting while driving. Uh, so... She was worried about distractedness before we had all these apps to to, uh, distract us. She doesn't really examine why our culture has accepted and in some instances even embraced or welcomed a culture of distraction. And uh, I want to hypothesize a little bit, uh, kind of hazard a guess at why... uh, people are willing to accept this. As I was rereading part of her book uh, in in preparing this talk, I was reminded of a passage from another essay by Wendell Berry, uh, his essay, The Pleasures of Eating, which he says, Our kitchens and other eating places more and more resemble filling stations, as our homes more and more resemble motels. Life is not very interesting, we seem to have decided. Let its satisfactions be minimal, perfunctory, and fast. We hurry through our meals to go to work and hurry through our work in order to recreate ourselves in the evenings and on weekends and vacations. And all this is carried out in a remarkable obliviousness to the causes and effects, the possibilities and the purposes of life in the body in this world. I think we tolerate and cultivate a culture of distraction because we're not sure collectively that life without distractions is really very interesting. To be modern is to assume that creation is chaotic and mute and we are not as a culture confident that life is meaningful unless we make it meaningful or at least we fill the meaningless time with something that's uh, uh, temporarily uh, involving or fascinating. We assume that human beings are the sovereign makers of meaning rather than the humble and grateful discoverers and receivers of meaning, so we're not as attentive to the order of creation as we might be because we're not convinced there's something there to discover. Now, Maggie Jackson does hint at the idea of the link between our distractedness and our lack of confidence that we live in a meaningful cosmos. She cites art historian Kenneth Clark. Some of you may be old enough to remember his landmark miniseries, Civilization, which was on public broadcasting. Uh, It was uh, the beginning of the colonization of American public television by the BBC, I think. Uh, (laughs) And now we have Downton Abbey. Uh, Civilization was this wonderful miniseries on the history of Western civilization. And Kenneth Clark, uh, I think, in the narration of that says that, that, that civilization is defined by a sense of permanence civilized man must feel that he belongs somewhere in space and time. Societies that have a confidence of cosmic belonging, that there's a meaningfulness to the natural order that we can participate in and find ourselves in, tend to produce monumental works of art and poetry, of architecture and music. But societies for which everything is ephemeral and provisional and ultimately weightless, Channel their genius into works that are temporarily fascinating and captivating until the next interesting thing comes along to displace it. Now, I don't think our technologies are the cause of our distractedness so much as the effect of a restlessness that, that uh, grabs us in the wake of a widespread public nihilism. Now, that mentality affects how we treat food, how we interact with space and time, how we treat language, how we treat relationships, sexuality, how we think about economic choices. And as I talked to Milt about this, I have said, you know, there are a lot of very wise books written about all these other disorders that accompany a culture of distraction. But one area that has uh, gotten my attention, that has received very little attention, is the way that this modern condition has affected our engagement with music and the way that uh, the patterns of engagement with music that are common in most people's lives reinforces the loss of confidence about cosmic meaning. This may be a big thing to assert, but my claim tonight is that music, while it's very important in the lives of many people, very few people have attentive habits when it comes to music. Music is typically a, 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 an important background experience. It's on in the background, but it's rarely a, a significant foreground activity for many people. In fact, I think many of us are good at what one philosopher has described as a kind of active non-listening. We, we have music on in the background and then don't listen to it, or we are uh, captive to music in the background in some place where we would rather it be quieter and we learn not to listen to it because it's... Uh, it, it's, it's uh, uh, again, a kind of distraction. What I want to lobby for in this talk tonight is a is a rewardingly, uh, a rewarding and meaningful delight in active listening, which I think is hard for many of us. I also want to assert that the typical practices of engaging music in a kind of distracted way are expressions of the same deep cultural disorder that undermine rich patterns of engagement with food and language and sex and time and place, all those other things I mentioned. That is, with a given order in creation. And I'm encouraged to be that bold about musical habits and this underlying assumptions about the structure of creation because, you may not be aware of this, but for most of recorded history in the West... Uh, as well as in the East, it was assumed that music was a means of understanding something about the order of creation. Uh, you may have heard the phrase "music of the spheres." That was one way of describing describing that belief. Today, we typically think that music is something that expresses personal experience and an inner reality, uh, and we think that musical tastes are entirely subjective and a matter of personal preference. And as a result, we most people tend to gravitate toward performances that are very deeply expressive, often in a very visceral way, a vocal style that seems very raw. In fact, I, it's interesting how often I'll hear reviewers of, of new music uh, talk about the, the raw and authentic performance. I heard a review recently, I don't know how many of you know, Tom Waits's voice. Tom Waits sounds like he gargles with ground glass. It's about as raw as you can get. And and for some reason, the attractiveness of this, which in some some ways is very unmusical, is precisely because of the rawness of it and and, and the the visceral, almost animal quality of his vocal style, which does express a kind of inner state. Not a particularly attractive or beautiful inner state, but a powerful one nonetheless. But again, we, we, we don't think of music typically as expressive of, 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 uh, of cosmic reality in some way. And that's a huge change in perspective, and it's only happened really in the last hundred years or so. Composer and critic Julian Johnson, uh, in his book, Who Needs Classical Music, argues, to an earlier age, our contemporary idea of complete relativism and musical judgment would have seemed nonsensical. One could no more make valid individual judgments about music than about science. Music was no more a matter of taste than was the orbit of the planets or the physiology of the human body. And then he says, from Plato, who died around 348 B.C., to Helmholtz, and here he's referring to a physicist and physician who also wrote a lot about music theory, who died in 1894. So from 348 B.C. to 1898, 1894, rather, music was understood to be based on natural laws and its value was derived from its capacity to frame and elaborate these laws in musical form. Its success was no more a matter of subjective judgment than the laws themselves. So for 2,200 years... And my son, who studied Asian history at uh, UVA, tells me it's pretty much the same story in the Confucian tradition in China and in other Asian Asian understanding, that there's, again, a a revelation of cosmic realities present in music. For at least 2,200 years, music was assumed to be related to the shape of the cosmos. It was assumed that we lived in an ordered cosmos and that music was a way of perceiving that order. Uh, it was also assumed that music would shape the inner life of men and women so that they could become in tune with the cosmos in some way. Or, if it was discordant music, they would be out of tune. That idea is still reflected in our language very faintly. If we say that someone has lost their temper, that literally means they've gone out of tune. Uh, you may have heard of the, the well-tempered clavier, a series of works by, uh, by Bach. Temperament refers to tuning and only by extension does it refer to uh, our our, uh, our tempers <laughs> and losing them. Uh, so to lose your temper means to go out of tune. And again, the idea there that uh, the, 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 vocab- uh, the uh, metaphor was also used to describe a person as being musical didn't mean that they could play uh, an instrument or sing well. To be a musical person meant that your inner being was in tune with reality in some way. Now, again, in modern culture, we're skeptical about the idea that there's any reality to which we must be in tune, and and I think that our thinking about music uh, has has, has similarly shifted. Participation in music that was constructed to resonate with the order of the cosmos could help, as C.S. Lewis once said, conform the soul to reality. So... It's assumed for millennia, and it still is assumed by some people, including many advertisers and I think the best composers for film music. It's assumed that different musical forms could represent various aspects of reality. Music enables us not just to apprehend, but to participate to some degree in aspects of reality. Um, some forms express the idea of, of majestic greatness. Not just that we feel great, but there's something great out there, and, and we can participate or listen uh, in, in music and be indwelt with a sense of the experience of greatness. Uh, some forms express ideas of, of humility or reticence or grief or restlessness or anticipation. These are inner realities, not uh, outer realities. Um, and our response to that music isn't totally subjective or arbitrary. I mean, you wouldn't listen to the Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and say this is music about melancholy longing. Nobody thinks that. They have a sense that it has a kind of triumphant sense about it. Nobody plays Bob Dylan's Blown in the Wind in the Locker Room before the big game. Um, it's not the right thing to do, and it's not just because of the words. It's, the music just doesn't fit. You don't drive players to their competitive best with that kind of uh, melody. It's the structure of the music, the use of melody and harmony and rhythm that enable the music to achieve particular effects. Years ago, English conductor Thomas Beecham once quipped, the English may not like music, but they absolutely love the noise it makes. (laughs) And I think behind that remark lay an assumption that music should be recognized as something more than the noise that it makes, however pleasant or diverting uh, the noise is. And those who regard it just as pleasant noise aren't attending to it as music. And this is, in a sense, the key point of this talk, that we can have music as part of our life without attending to it just because it's pleasant noise. It's like nice wallpaper, oral wallpaper. Uh, some of you may have seen the movie Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. How many saw Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Douglas Adams wrote that. What you may not realize, Douglas Adams, I, I'm saying this because I'm a radio audio producer, radio producer, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy may be the only instance where a movie was based on a book, but a book was based on a series of radio dramas. It, it, Douglas Adams originally wrote a series of six radio dramas, called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which grew into a five-part trilogy, uh, as he described it. Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, but in addition to those wonderful exercises in in irony and humor and satire, uh, Douglas Adams wrote uh, two books featuring a, uh, a kind of detective. Uh, the first was called Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, uh, the second was called The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul, which a very English title, it seems to me. And in in the first book, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, there's a, there's a character named Michael Wenton Weeks. And Michael Wenton Weeks is uh, the editor of an arts magazine. And at the beginning of one of the chapters, Wenton Weeks is experiencing this great sense of boredom. And in order to kind of... Alleviate the boredom, to distract himself from his own boredom, he walks into his workroom. And this is a book written, I think, in the 80s. So this was. There may have been CDs around, but a lot of people still had turntables. If you don't know, ask your grandparents what those are if you don't know what those are. And he finds this really old vinyl recording of some wind concertos by Antonio Vivaldi, and he puts the record on the ancient record player. And this is, uh, this is how Douglas Adams describes this experience for Wenton Weeks. Suddenly, he found to his surprise that he was actually listening to the music. A bewildered look crept slowly across his face as he realized that he had never done this before. He had heard it many, many times and thought that it made a very pleasant noise. Indeed, he found that it made a pleasant background noise against which to discuss the concert season. (laughs) But it had never occurred to him that there was anything actually to listen to. He sat thunderstruck by the interplay of melody and counterpoint which suddenly stood revealed to him with a clarity that owed nothing to the dust-ridden surface of the record or the 14-year-old needle. But with this revelation came an almost immediate sense of disappointment which confused him all the more. The music suddenly revealed to him, the music suddenly revealed to him was oddly unfulfilling. It was as if his capacity to understand the music had suddenly increased up to and far beyond the music's ability to satisfy it. All in one dramatic moment. He strained to listen for what was missing and felt that the music was like a flightless bird that didn't even know what capacity it had lost. It walked very well, but it walked where it should soar. It walked where it should swoop. It walked where it should climb and bank and dive. It walked where it should thrill with the giddiness of flight. It never even looked up. It's a wonderful little moment with this epiphany that this character has, where for the first time he's actually actively listening and thrilled with it, but then suddenly realizes that the music that he's listening to doesn't have much to listen to. Uh, He'd often heard the music, and now that he's finally listening to it, There's not as much to listen to as he'd assumed, Uh, and it's a realization that in the book establishes an appreciation for music that does soar and bank and dive. By contrast, I won't uh, reveal any spoilers. One of the side effects of becoming more attentive to musical meaning is that we are less satisfied with many musical expressions, and there's good objective reason to feel dissatisfaction at much music. Last July a group from the Spanish National Research Council, which included uh, professionals from the field of artificial intelligence, from mathematics, uh, I think from neuroscience, published a report in the journal Scientific Reports, and the report documented the findings from a long research project that examined the musical structure of (laughs) 464,411 Western popular music recordings, released between 1955 and 2010. It was pop, rock, hip-hop, folk, funk, almost every imaginable genre of popular music. And they figured out ways to analyze the musical structure uh, with the aid of computers. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure they were grateful they didn't uh, have to do all this manually. And one of the things they found was that the melodies in popular music were generally getting less and less complex, more and more predictable over time, that the sound quality was getting more and more homogeneous and predictable, and that the music was getting louder (laughs) consistently. I first read about this in a headline that says, yes, your parents were right. It is getting louder. So in other words, the distinctively musical elements of melody and harmonic structure and the sound uh, the the tone color and texture the distinctively musical elements were becoming less interesting less compelling less complex while the purely sonic power the mere physical sensation of the music was getting stronger and I've seen other reports that suggest this. Again, this is just looking at, at, at pop music between 1955 and 2010. I was mentioning at dinner that, uh, just for fun, I have a friend who's a, a composer and, and orchestrator in Hollywood, and um, he has worked on some pretty big films, including Avatar and Toy Story. And uh, most recently, he worked on uh, um, Skyfall and did, worked with the composer and did all the orchestration for Skyfall and actually did the... Arranging for Adele's Academy Award-winning song, uh, and also did the arrangement for her performance uh, at at the Oscars. And I had heard uh, was it uh, the the Quantum of Silence, Quantum of Solace, the the, Sol- the first, the most, the Bond film before that. And I was so disappointed that the the song was almost nothing melodically. There was nothing going on melodically. So I did an interesting an unscientific study. I, I downloaded the Bond songs from Goldfinger up to Skyfall and listened to all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I found that these guys, these scientists are right. Although the Skyfall song got a lot more interesting, but the, the four or five or six before that, there was just nothing going on except vocal pyrotechnics. Uh, and um, and a, and a, and again, a loud driving beat, but not anything interesting harmonically. And and so I was very proud that my friend was involved in whatever uh, tangential way in in uh, in recovering a sense of musical intelligence or intelligibility, uh, it, it, at least in the Bond films. <laughs> <laughs> so what's happening? Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called "Learning in Wartime," which was on well he was trying to vindicate the task of doing serious academic work in cultural studies while people are off getting killed in in combat. And he said, you know, we're we're going to have culture one way or another. We're either going to have good cultural experience or bad cultural experience. And at one point he says, if you don't go on thinking rationally, you will think irrationally. If you reject aesthetic satisfactions, you will fall into sensual satisfactions. This is exactly what I think is happening here, that uh, if we're not interested in the, the kind of attentiveness necessary to, to see how a melodic line works and to, and to listen to it attentively and possibly even learn how to play it on an instrument, um, if it's just in the background, then we want something that's just a sensual satisfaction. Um, uh, I think that if you if you can't listen attentively and rationally, then you tend to listen uh, irrationally. As I said before, for centuries, music was assumed to be something that one could apprehend with one's mind as well as with one's senses and emotions. And theologically, for Christians, it was understood uh, as being that because creation was regarded as both beautiful and intelligible. Because God was both beauty and logos, A theologian David Schindler refers to Christ as the logos that is love which is a phrase I really like a lot, the logos that is love. There's an order there, but it's an order that is rooted in love and delight. And that, I think, is a way of connection, connecting beauty and intelligibility. And I think one of the reasons we have music, I think one of the reasons God has given us the gift of music, is so that we can have, in a single experience, um, the combination of delight through the senses and experienced intelligibility, that we don't have to separate delight and rationality or or the the beauty and the logos. I think when you sing a well-constructed melody or sing in harmony in a well-constructed musical work that you're experiencing a beautiful intelligibility from the inside. But if music is composed or performed in a way that obscures either beauty or intelligibility, if music is experienced only as a sheer appeal to or assault on the senses, then we become participants in the denial or the fracturing of the combination of love and order, of beauty and reason that's at the heart of creation. I think that coupling of beauty and reason, of love and order, is at the heart of creation because it is... The very nature of him by whom and through whom and for whom all things were made and in whom all things hold together, in whom all things find their coherence and loveliness and rationality. And here I'm paraphrasing St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. Our commitment to keeping love and order, beauty and reason together uh, should raise questions about the modern tendency to think that we can neatly separate form from content or we can neatly separate uh, beauty from reason. And I think the, the reality of music uh, is a wonderful rebuke to that kind of assumption. But again, we tend to listen, or we tend to hear and not listen. We tend to be inattentive to music. This isn't a new problem. 1953, philosopher Suzanne Langer, who wrote a lot of works on aesthetics, in a book called Feeling and Form, she described musical hearing as a kind of intelligence of the ear. And she said, it's an intelligence of the ear that is acquired only through exercise. You have to learn how to do it. One writer I read some time ago said, people think that they know how to hear music just because they have ears, but no one assumes that they know how to read just because they have eyes. Um, And it turns out that music has the capacity that learning how to listen to music, especially if it's music with any kind of complexity, is, is a kind of learned experience. Um, She says, people learn to read and study with music on in the background. And again, she's writing in 1953 before multitasking was considered to be virtuous. Um, People learn to read and study with music, sometimes beautiful and powerful music going on in the background. As they cultivate inattention or divided attention, music as such becomes more and more a mere psychological stimulant or sedative. Hence those words. (laughs) <laughs> not seduction I didn't say which they enjoy even during conversation and she finds this incredible that people can have music on that, that's actually commanding music in some ways but, but we ignore it we, we, we are inattentive in this way they cultivate passive hearing which is the very contradiction of listening Langer goes on to say that people who have cultivated passive hearing often confuse enjoying music with enjoying themselves unmusically while listening to music. This is a very different thing. <laughs> uh, and many people have this, you know, they have experience, they have wonderful experiences while certain, and they attach it to certain music. You know, that's the music on my first date or my prom, or, you know, we had this great vacation in the Adirondacks and we listened to that song the whole way there. Um, well, that's nothing to do with the music. It could be really bad music, <laughs> but something nice happened while the bad music was on. And and unfortunately, we tend to, we tend to associate the extra musical experience with the music, uh, and 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 then give the music the benefit of the doubt. I mean, it's it's like yeah, pork rinds. We we ate you know we ate pork rinds on our honeymoon. So <laughs> you know we always want to have pork. Nothing. Well, yeah, I do have something against pork rinds. Okay, <laughs> and I guess. The analogy with food stands, too, because people often defend eating bad food or unhealthy food or because of the fact that they had some good experiences while eating the food. Music can be in the background while you're having a good time, but the structure of the music, the actual form in which its richest source of meaning is made possible, may have little or nothing to do with the nature of the pleasure that's experienced. And again... One of the reasons I've become more and more passionate about this is because I think there are delights in music that many people just never have occasion to delight in. Um, I I feel the same way about beers. Uh, (laughs) There are some beers that people drink that don't have the capacity for delight that other beers do. (laughs) I mean, let's be serious. (laughs) So, and I can make this argument with regard to beers or single malt scotches, and I don't know cigars, so I'll take Milt's word for it on cigars. And I want to basically make the same kind of plea for, for, for musical possibilities. A couple of years ago, I had dinner with a seminary professor who, who's written a lot about music and theology and who's actually a brilliant pianist and oboist. And we were talking about this problem of musical inattentiveness and musical illiteracy. And, and he remarked how frustrating it was when he was invited to have a meal with some of his graduate students. He, he said he saw really thoughtful books on the shelves and really intelligent art on the walls. And he said, and then I look at their CD collection, nothing but songs, three-and-a-half-minute songs. And I I ventured no Mahler symphonies, for instance, uh, as an example. Mahler writes these really long, long symphonies. And what he was lamenting was the absence of habits of intelligent listening because listening only to short and often relatively monotonous songs means that a listener doesn't cultivate an awareness of how music might achieve meaningful development in time. If you're used to typically listening to music just in the background as a kind of ambient presence... Uh, 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 not something that takes shape through time, then you're missing out on the kind of development that does require attentiveness over time. Music not only achieves meaning in time, it confers meaning on time. Uh, if if the music is just kind of like wallpaper, just a kind of drone, then it doesn't achieve the kind of thing it has the capacity to, uh, to do, which is, uh, it's, a, it's a temporal art. By the way, I, I, I've come to believe that... Um, that song when the roll is called up yonder is wrong theologically that it, it because it says uh, when the trumpet of the lord shall sound and time shall be no more now the trumpet sounding and time not existing are, are in contradiction you can't have music without time so so i think that temporality is one of the delights of the eschaton and so uh, and that's why music is one music and food are the two things cultural activities we know we're going to be doing forever Um, but they both require temporality. Uh, Music, uh, that kind of understanding of musical narrative or musical development will elude us if we treat music just as, and here I'm quoting Julian Johnson, a thing that one possesses rather than a structured temporal event to which one must give oneself up. I think I had all the prepositions correct in there. Uh, Julian Johnson makes those uh, comments in a chapter called Music as Art in his book, Uh, Who Needs Classical Music? He says, as we cease to attend to the detailed sequence of musical events and the unfolding of the dynamic processes, the music takes on a certain uniformity of surface. And I think that's what these Spanish researchers were realizing. You know, I think of of, uh, popular songs earlier popular songs, think of something like Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which has an incredibly complex uh, melodic structure. It starts off with a jump of an octave, which is really almost unheard of in popular music, and and uh, has this very delicate uh, melodic structure. Uh, something happens. There's a kind of story that's told uh, all the way up to, through the last ascending scale uh, in that song. But um, again, if if you're not If the music's not written to convey that kind of narrative, uh, then the music, as Johnson says, takes on a certain uniformity of substance. And because most of us experience music at at that level or in that way, many people have come to prefer what Julian Johnson calls seamless music, seamless music, which, as he says, avoids any suggestion of complex verticality, such as harmonic complexity, that is, where multiple melodies are intertwined with each other, a kind of dimensional quality to the music. And uh, that, he says, that would detract from a deliberate depthlessness, which we want a depthlessness because we want music that's on in the background and not going to interfere with us. That preference for depthless seamlessness eliminates many of the capacities of music to serve as a mode of thoughtful and intelligent communication. Uh, And a lot of the music that we hear every day has very little musical content. Um, The seamlessness that works well in the background works against the cultivation of rich melodies and subtle harmonic development and creative rhythmic expression. Um, That that whole question of attentiveness to form, I I I was reading, uh, I I had collected over the years, Encyclopedia Britannica Books of the Year. My parents had an Encyclopedia Britannica, which I uh inherited from them and uh Britannica used to publish back when people read books uh and had books on the shelf um a, a book of the year which every year would update the encyclopedia with articles on key subjects uh especially if there was something like nat- uh, you know political subjects uh but they also always had articles on uh issues in the arts at performing arts and, 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 uh, and visual arts and architecture. And I, I read all of the articles on popular music from about 1950 to about 1970 for a 20-year period. And long around 1962, 63, somewhere in there, the, 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 the critic who was writing the piece on kind of summarizing the year in popular music said a, a remarkable thing. He said, for the first time this year, sales... Of recorded music, of records, exceeded sales of sheet music. Do you know what sheet music is? That's music you buy so you can learn to play it yourself. And I was shocked that it happened that late. It was sometime in the mid '60s. And he said, "What this means is that more and more people. This is amazingly prescient. More and more people will evaluate the quality of a song based on the personality of the performer." Rather than on the structure of the music. Now, what you may not realize is that popular music written in Tin Pan Alley in the teens and 20s and 30s and well into the 50s, people who write a song, George Gershwin, George and Ira Gershwin write a song, or Cole Porter writes a song, he doesn't write it for a particular performer unless he's writing it for performance in a, in a, in a movie, uh, which sometimes happens. But often, three or four recording artists would release the same recordings of the same song at the same time so the song wasn't associated just with a particular performer and record sales were record sales were a way of selling sheet music record sales were a way of marketing sheet music uh, people wanted to get recordings made so that Somebody would hear the recording and go out and buy the sheet music and learn come home and learn to play it and sing it with their friends at home. When's the last time anybody bought some sheet music? To, 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 I know it happens because sheet music is still available. But it mostly happens for professional musicians, not for folks uh, coming home of an evening and wanting to uh, to uh, entertain themselves. Um, and that's, that's a huge shift. The personality of the performer matters more than the structure of the music, and I think that's, I think that that has shaped uh, the direction of popular music uh, a, a great deal in, in o- over actually a period of decades. Uh, I did an interview several years ago with a, a linguist named John McWhorter who wrote a book called Doing Our Own Thing, which had in my book the best subtitle ever concocted, Um, the subtitle was The Degradation of Language and Music and Why We Should Like Care. (laughs) (laughs) And McWhorter, who at the time was uh, at at Berkeley as a a uh, linguist, trained as a linguist, argued that since the mid-1960s, since about the same time that sheet music dropped in sales, uh, both language and music have suffered from a loss of eloquence elegance and formal care and he says you know everything and now he says uh, politicians give speeches and they 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 go out of the way to sound informal uh, Richard Nixon actually had an informality coach because uh, he wanted to sound more informal uh, I think I think Al Gore had went through some similar kind of thing to so it wouldn't sound so formal and wouldn't um, uh, the idea that we would have oratory, public speech that was formal and elegant and, 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 and structured like poetry. Uh, that begins to decline sometime in the mid-1960s. And McWhorter's argument is the reason it declines is because in the mid-1960s, we begin to see a suspicion toward authority in American culture that was unprecedented. And formal patterns of speech, standards of oratory, are expressions of formality. And as Americans got more and more suspicious about authority... Uh, they got more and more suspicion about formality, and so he argues that not just in language, but in dress patterns of dress, in patterns of dance, in styles of eating, uh, in all sorts of things, people became more and more informal. And he argues that it's it's a huge cultural shift. Well, it's doing doing our own thing. It's about rejecting any kind of standards of propriety or uh, or or uh, again or uh, of elegance. Uh, I, and he makes a very uh, convincing argument, demanding forms in language or in music uh, come to seem inauthentic or uncool or, or contrived. Most of the book's about language. He is a linguist, but he does have a chapter on music because it turns out he's a big fan of Broadway musicals. And he, he documents how this happened in Broadway musicals over the course of 20 years also. And he, he says that suspicion about formality in music means that people tend to listen to music, and here's, uh, here I'll quote him, mainly for two things. One, rhythm, and two, the vernacular authenticity of the singer's vocal tone. In other words, melody and harmony are less important than a regular and danceable rhythm and a vocal style which typically has to be unpolished. Not always, but often. The singer should sound like somebody you could have a beer with, he says. McWhorter compares a preference for such music with a preference for hot dogs and Coca-Cola. Quote, hot dogs are good, of course, as is Coke. I pity early Americans who did not have this exquisite-tasting beverage. (laughs) But in the end, hot dogs and Coke are simple stuff. Almost anyone likes them on first tasting worldwide. Asparagus is odd-looking and vaguely reminiscent of genitals. (laughs) Oysters on the half shell look like mucus sitting in a pool of saliva on a rock. (laughs) Bourbon really doesn't taste good at all and is more about smell and sensation. These take more acclimation, but they are well worth the effort. (laughs) Just as an earlier America had more room for bourbon, think of cocktail hour and all those John Cheever homes, it also had more room for music that makes an especially high degree of concentration to write, perform, and listen to. And again, here he's talking about pop music, not not classical music. Now, I'm sure that many people may object to the idea of listening intelligently. People often think that music should be experienced mindlessly. It's best experienced by the emotions directly uh, through the body. But for some forms of music, that may be all that is possible. But music does have the capacity to involve the body and the mind and the emotions in a complete and unified whole. I like to use the analogy of taking a hike up on the Appalachian Trail. And if you knew nothing about the flora and fauna along the crest of the Blue Ridge, and nothing about the history of the region and the landscape, you might enjoy the quality of the air and the vaguely perceived quality of color and sound. But if you were a little bit more knowledgeable about the surroundings, the experience would be remarkably different. If you could recognize the song of an indigo bunting and knew how high in the trees to look for one how to move quietly enough to catch a glimpse of that iridescent blue, then the experience of your body and your emotions would be quite different because of the attentiveness that was available to you. And if you stayed on the trail long enough, and if you had the patience and vision to attend to subtle shifts in the quality of light or the texture of breezes, your eyes and your skin would know something of the meaning of an autumn afternoon or a summer morning that was different from other times. If you knew the names and characteristics of indigenous wildflowers, you'd see more than a vague, pretty carpet at your feet. You'd see things at your feet that had a specific quality that were evocative of history and of healing very often, because you'd see squirrel corn and giant chickweed, great chickweed, and witch hobble, and virgin's bower, and blazing star, and sneezeweed, although you wouldn't see them all on the same day. Attentive experience helps to render experience intelligible, meaningful rather than just sensational, and thus events that we can share with others in some detail and with some nuance. Such knowledge is acquired in many ways through apprenticeship, through study, through exploration and affection. It's the kind of knowledge that enables us to conform our souls to reality as C.S. Lewis puts it in The Abolition of Man. The shape of reality is conferred by the Logos, who is love. So there's a deep relationship between attentiveness and love. Becoming a musical person, being tuned or tempered correctly, may be a mode of love. I want to close quickly with one paragraph from Oliver O'Donovan, who's one of my favorite theologians. This is from a book of his called uh, Resurrection and Moral Order. And the book is basically a book about ethics rooted in the idea of an order in the nature of creation. And again, as I said at the beginning of the talk, it was long assumed that music was expressive of an order in the nature of creation. So if ethics begins uh, with an affirmation of the uh, order of the nature of creation, then, then music should be a role in, in, uh, in, in shaping our uh, uh, thinking and, and uh, affections about such things. Here he's talking about love and the order of creation. He says, Love does not bear the dominating and manipulative traits that have been given to it in some attempts to characterize the Krishna ethic. Love achieves its creativity by being perceptive. Love achieves its creativity by being perceptive. It attempts to act for any being only on the basis of an appreciation of that being. Thus, classical Christian descriptions of love are often found invoking two other terms which expound its sense. The first is wisdom, which is the intellectual apprehension of the order of things, which discloses how each being stands in relation to each other. The second is delight, which is effective attention to something simply for what it is and for the fact that it is. Such love is the fruit of God's presence within us, uniting us to the humanity of God in Christ, who cherishes and defends all that God the Father has made and thought. I love that passage, again, because I think, again, music historically was understood as the union of the wisdom of the perception of this order and the expression of this order uh, and delight in the reality of that order. And uh, if 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 we insist on music that doesn't require attentiveness, and I think we lose out on an important analogous experience that God has given us uh, to, to, to teach us something actually finally about the nature of love.